Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hi, Kim. Let's talk about Halloween and the deliciousness of Halloween candy. That sounds like a great topic to me. Right? I want to actually maybe start talking a little bit about trick-or-treating, if you don't mind. I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great place to start. I learned a whole bunch about trick-or-treating. You know, it had origins in Scottish and Irish mumming or guising, where groups of kids in disguises went around to houses, and they sang songs and begged for soul cakes or apples or money or really any other treat that the house owner would spare. The earliest known occurrence of guising in North America around 1911, and a newspaper in Kingston, Ontario, Canada reported on groups of children going around guising around the neighborhood. So props to Canada. There are other references to that ritual of guising come to us from 1915 and 1920, but the phrase trick-or-treat really seemed to only appear in print for the first time in 1927 in Blackie, Alberta. So another shout out for Canada. And then later in the United States, 1932, and by 1939, it appeared in national media. Wow, that's so interesting. I'd read an article about the Scottish and Irish immigrants that brought that tradition over to the States. And the trick-or-treat, the phrase itself, they can't decide exactly where, but it did show up in a Peanuts comic strip. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. And then Disney also used it. So after that point, it seemed to have become a lot more prevalent. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I know that sugar rationing, so there was sugar Mm. rationing in the United States, and I I really saw a lot of information about the U.S. So there may be variances in in how this trick-or-treating and that idea of going door-to-door for candy, there might be differences of how this happened in the rest of the world. So for argument's sake, I'm just talking about United States right now. So World War II, we saw a ton of sugar rationing in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, particularly between April 1942 and June 1947. But interestingly enough, right after the war, the idea of trick-or-treating seemed to be reintroduced by children's media. So magazines, books, cartoons, family TV shows. And it was firmly re-entrenched as a cultural tradition by 1952, which is really modern when you think about it. I didn't realize that it was such a modern tradition in the U.S. I mean, 52 feels like a long time ago, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's not really when you think of the entire history of the world and then the entire history of Halloween as well. Exactly. Yeah, no, I thought that was very interesting as well. I'd seen 30s, 40s, but then 50s is when it became very popular. And it was during the 50s that the candy manufacturers started to really embrace this. And before that, it was a lot of homemade candies like cookies and cakes and mm-hmm. nuts, coins even, and toys that were given during Halloween. But then 
in the 50s when the manufacturers started to produce candies that were a lot more economical. That really started to become a thing. And then in the 70s is when the whole pre-manufactured, packaged, pre-wrapped candy really became embraced by the, the culture as a whole. And one of the reasons is because of the whole scare about the real Halloween boogeyman tampering right. with goodies. It was really fortunate urban legend for the candy manufacturers. Not so much for us. I mean, one of my favorites was the popcorn balls that people made. And mm -hmm. once that started, those homemade treats really weren't given out much anymore. Yeah. My memory is of receiving homemade treats from neighbors. When I press my memory, I remember it being neighbors, going to a neighbor's house so that they could give me a very special Halloween treat. And I guess... Being a kid, you don't really have that sense of scale and scope. I think I may have remembered it as being more widely done than it actually was. That sort of that sense that my neighborhood was the world entire. And so that beyond the streets that I was familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis were just more streets like the ones I grew up on. And so if I was receiving these treats, surely every kid everywhere else was receiving the same kind of delicacy. Right. But it may not actually have happened that way. I do remember plenty of poison candy, poison apple scares, especially I would say in the late 80s. And what was interesting was, and I hadn't realized was that these myths, they date back to the 60s. And they are in a way predicated on some real life things. There was a case of a dentist who handed out a bunch of poison candy, but it is actually way more myth than it is reality. This idea that people will fully poison candy or put razor blades and apples to hurt kids. Right. Yeah. It's just not a thing. But you're right. There is some basis. There are some stories. And, and there was one uh, that I'd found about a lady in 1964 who gave ant poison and dog biscuits to children. And she was actually arrested. And when the... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And the police questioned her and she said, because I, those are the treats that I gave to kids that I thought were too old to be trick-or-treating. <laughs> And what is that about? That's the other thing that I don't understand. Why do we feel like there is this necessary age requirement to trick-or-treating that, because I faced that as a teenager. I remember going out with a girlfriend on Halloween and a door very specifically being shut in our face because we were too old. And we were freshmen in high school, so I think we were about oh, 14 years old, 13 or 14. They just absolutely, utterly refuse to give us any kind of treat. Yeah, that is an interesting concept. At what point do you become, as the giver, at what point do you decide that I am not going to be gracious? There's an age limit to that? Yeah, the, yeah that there's an age limit to, but that there's something inherently you must be a child right. in order to enjoy or experience this. I had a group of adults come to my door for Halloween. I don't think I would necessarily turn them away. I'm sure I wouldn't, as long as they were in costume. Yeah. Now, if they just came <laughs> and, and they were expecting. True. Yeah. Even between us, there's some expectation about what that tradition is supposed to do within our culture. Yeah. I'm not sure how we would fill in that blank even. As long as they weren't there to take advantage of our generosity or weren't there to cause mischief, that would definitely be, right. I would be very concerned about a group of adults to my doorstep unannounced not in costume but <laughs> huh. yeah it's odd that's an odd one 
And then UNICEF has a campaign on Halloween. They encourage kids to request and receive donations to UNICEF to fund things that they do with immunizations and healthcare and nutrition. And they do a lot of work all over the world. But I didn't realize that fundraising campaign dates back to 1953. I do remember receiving pennies meant for UNICEF, although I didn't really know what they were for and also very confused as to why somebody would be giving me like basically five pennies. That fundraising campaign is still a thing that UNICEF does. Do you remember UNICEF being a big part of Halloween when you were? No, this is the first I've ever heard of it. Yeah, it was. And it was confusing to me too. And but it was one of those things that I chalked up to, okay, this is just not something I know about, but everybody else seems to. So I'm going to play along. If I know what what this is all about, I I would love to hear from anybody who remembers this or has taken part in it or knows about the campaign. I think that would be intriguing. Me too. I would be. I am super curious too because, as I said, I assumed that it was something that people knew about. And also, I frankly am a little bit curious about the audacity of getting kids to turn a holiday. That is arguably like kid focused into a fundraising campaign. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I, I think it's great encouraging kids to think about philanthropy, think about charity. But my gosh, it just seems like such a downer, <laughs> frankly. Right. I don't want pennies. Even though it's for a good cause, it's just a little bit of a downer. Because in lieu of a treat, you're getting five pennies. You're getting five pennies to give. But it definitely speaks to that American aesthetic of you better clean your plate. They're starving kids in Africa kind of mentality that happened, came up in food culture. Yeah. And about that time. Yeah. That sort of sense of global citizenship. Right. I remember reading books as a kid that the main characters would be really confused. Like, how does my finishing the liver and onions on my plate help the starving kids in Africa? It's not like we're going to exactly pack up this plate of uneaten food and send it to Africa. That message, which seems to be attempting to address gratitude, really kind of is a little bit misplaced. Does it make you more aware of the abundance that you have when you start to think about the starving kids in Africa? Or is it a frustrated parent trying to get the kid to eat? I don't know. I'm going to go with the frustrated parent trying to get the kid to eat. Africa is world away when you're a child. There's mm-hmm. you have no, there's nothing that you can even relate yeah. to. No. I'm going with the frustrated parent. Yeah. so yeah back to halloween yes (laughs) i had a little plastic orange pumpkin candy bucket it was the only thing that that was good for was being a candy bucket for halloween hats off to my blessed mother for storing that 364 days a year (laughs) for it to only really receive one night of use for years i had that candy bucket for ages Mm -hmm. there was that certain pleasure feeling the weight of it filling up and, and it getting harder to carry. And it was a, a timer for the night as well. Because as the bucket filled up, the longer you were out, it was like sort of my marker for the evening. It started empty and ended full. And that would, would be a Halloween Eve for me. Yep. Yep. Same. And the, the orange plastic pumpkin with the Halloween, the jack-o'-lantern face on it, the black yes. strap holder. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Although mine actually sat on the top of the refrigerator, mostly filled with candy from the Halloween before. I I wasn't a big candy eater. My sister, however, loved candies and mostly her Halloween bucket had matchbox cars in it. So (laughs) she would dump those out on Halloween and we would go trick or treating. I love that she had matchbox (laughs) stuff. I wanted it as a kid. I don't actually have any kind of affinity for cars, but man, those matchbox commercials made them look so much fun. Right. 
They looked like a ton of fun. Yep, they were. We had so much fun with those cars. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. When we came home from trick-or-treating, my first best friend's dad was a cop. And we would have to take our buckets over to their house and dump them out. And he would go through them to make sure they weren't poisoned, going back to the concern <laughs> about being <laughs> yeah. poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, when we thought, oh, my goodness, this is so important, this ritual of having Kenny go through our candies to make sure we don't get sick and die mm -hmm. or bite into an apple that has a razor in it or a needle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He never took any of the yucky candies. He always took the best candies. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ones most likely to be suspicious. Exactly. <laughs> We did a lot of trading. I didn't grow oh, yeah. up with siblings in the house necessarily. So the fact that my memory of Halloween involves so many other kids is actually kind of interesting. I know that we did a lot with friends' kids. I think my mom had a lot of friends who were also single moms. And so I'm sure that it was a relief for them to like basically have all their kids together one place, one time might free them up to go to parties and things. It's those things as a kid, you don't really register what's happening in an adult world. I also don't have a strong memory of other adults really being around. We must have had somebody escort us around for safety, but I actually just don't have a memory of that happening. But I do remember trading. The culmination of the evening was about dumping out the candy, but in individual piles so that no one accidentally gave candy <laughs> to somebody else. <laughs> And starting to do these stakes on I'll trade two Smarties for your lollipop. And certain candies obviously were favored and not to be traded. So I would never, ever trade my peanut butter cups, as I've said. They're probably my all-time favorite Halloween candy. But there were others I didn't feel quite so strong about that others did. So, yeah, it was early childhood commerce. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that some things had more value to you than to somebody else and vice versa. And, and wow. learning early negotiation techniques. It was pretty funny. One of my all-time favorite candies, I'm just going to launch into it, especially related to Halloween, is candy corn. <laughs> and I know that there's this huge debate in the, the Halloween candy community about the value of things like candy corn and Tootsie Rolls, which mm -hmm. I hate. So, oh my God, those are my favorite. I know. I don't understand. I don't, <laughs> I understand, don't understand how we can like each other so much. <laughs> <laughs> be, be so opposed to each other's Halloween candies. So can I tell you a little bit about candy corn and make my case here for why candy corn is, is not as bad as everyone else thinks it is? Absolutely. Fabulous. And then you are more than welcome to try in vain to convince me to give Tootsie Rolls a chance. <laughs> That's very gracious yeah, of you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. L the, the least I can do for you, Light. <laughs> well... October 30th is actually National Candy Corn Day. That is something as determined by the American Confectioners Society. Candy corn was likely invented in the late 1800s by the Wonderly Candy Company in Philadelphia. Wonderly Candy itself was founded by Philip Wonderly, a German immigrant, in 1867. And the story goes that Wonderly and longtime employee George Renninger collaborated to produce chicken corn candy with its trademark very telltale white, orange, yellow layered colors meant to represent individual kernels of corn. Very much like you would scatter for chicken feed. And actually agricultural themes were really popular for candy in the late 19th century. Buttercream confections 
were sold in the shapes of pumpkins, leaves, and turnips. And I am truly sorry that candy turnips are not a thing anymore. But even so, they candy corn was not insanely popular at this time. The Golitz Candy Company, which is later known as the Jelly Belly Candy Company, they started mass producing and marketing candy corn around 1898 as chicken feed. And that's really when its enduring popularity took off. It was penny candy. It was easy to find. For just a few pennies, you could get a bag of it. There's packaging from the 1920s from Golitz featuring a proud rooster scratching around in candy bits along with the motto, King of the Candy Corn Fields. And there's also advertising from Wonderly about competitors stealing their candy ideas and that the original is what is best. So I I imagine there was maybe some kind of little candy corn competition going on. in the early 1900s. Incidentally, what I found out when I was looking into this was that the Golitz Candy Factory suffered a catastrophic factory fire in 1950, and luckily all the employees escaped unscathed, but there was a tragic candy corn shortage that year. And the fact that made media and is an enduring memory, I think demonstrates how important candy corn actually is to the United States. That there was this moment in time when there was this candy corn shortage and people were worried and scared about it. Wow. Right? Yeah. The chicken part of the moniker, that name association eventually gave way to more more simple candy corn. I like to think that that name change came about because this is probably not the case, but it's fun to imagine that people were worried about folks feeding candy corn to chickens or just the fact that, you know, you're eating something that the, the chickens are eating. Right. Being not so fun. Corn was not a popular food. At the turn of the century, it was still considered very farm-based stuff that animals eat. Silage. Not a big part of our diets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the candy corn recipe really hasn't changed much since it was first invented. It's fairly simply composed of a slurry of corn syrup, sugar, and water. Fondant was later added for texture and marshmallow for flavor. It was made by hand as workers poured the slurry from hot 45-pound kettles into inverted triangle molds three times. So there's the white tip. There's an orange center and a yellow top, kind of like making a layered gelatin mold where you have to pour and set and pour and set. When the candy hardened, the kernels were popped out of the molds and given a polishing layer. Today, it's made by machines, but interestingly, it's still the same primary ingredients, making it effectively the same candy that my great-grandparents would have enjoyed if candy corn was sold abroad. So I like this idea that this is something I could have shared in common with my great-grandparents had we all originated in the same place. That's really interesting. And yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And even though it's made by machines, it's still the same process. It's white slurry, orange slurry. Now they do make new colors now. And this is something I'm not so on board with, which is curious. They make red, green, and white ones for Christmas and red, pink, white ones for Valentine's Day. There are actually quite a few color variations, but I am a diehard. I love that classic orange, yellow, white colors for Halloween for the fall. I have to agree with that, even though I don't like the candy. (laughs) (laughs) As a candy, it weathered actually 130 years. It's weathered World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. It endured as a candy. And although trick-or-treating was already a tradition, candy corn did become a staple Halloween candy, probably because of its associations with harvest, the fact that it looks like a kernel of corn, and it's got Halloween-friendly colors. And even though so many people say they hate it, its largest candy manufacturer, Brax, produces 7 billion pieces of candy corn a year. 
And there are all kinds of recipes that mimic or incorporate that iconic candy corn color, flavor into cocktails, cookies, donuts, fudge, fruit parfaits. The list goes on. If you Google candy corn recipes, it's endless. What I find noble about candy corn is that it's really a North American food. It's created by immigrants reflecting a major food icon in North America, corn, which now is a staple we enjoy in a myriad of ways. Raw, boiled, grilled, roasted, baked, popped. And of course, corn is the origin of cornstarch, cornmeal, corn syrup, corn oil, and dextrose. Anyway, this is why I heart candy corn by Kim Baker. (laughs) Those are all very, very strong, valid points. (laughs) Valid. So, I haven't changed your mind, though, have I? I still, no, absolutely not. I okay. haven't changed my mind. Well, so tell me, please do tell me. I really actually want to hear about Tootsie Rolls because I think I've heard they've got an unusual origin as well. They do. And when you talk about immigrants coming to the States and, and creating something, this story is very similar to that. The Tootsie Roll was invented by an Austrian Jewish immigrant named Leo Hirschfeld. And he actually did patent the whole recipe in the process of this. His father was a candy maker as well. So he took up that veil and started making candy here in the States, actually in Brooklyn. And he named the Tootsie Roll after his daughter, Clara, whose nickname was Tootsie. Aww. I love that part. That's sweet. Um, he actually came to a very sad end, however. He was Aww. the vice president of the company, the Sweets Company of America, and he was fired. The story is a little vague. He either resigned or he was fired. Hmm. And on January 14th in 1922, he shot himself no. in a hotel in Manhattan, and he left a note oh, that no. said, sorry, but could not help it. Oh. Yeah. So that was a sad thing. So see. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Tugging on the strings right now, the heart. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I maybe have to rethink this Tootsie Roll thing. <laughs> keep, okay. Um, keep keep going. <laughs> and then in 1935, the company actually was in some serious financial difficulty. And there was a supplier of the boxes that wrap around the log. That was the original, the Tootsie Roll log that was broken into the little mm. parts. And because mm-hmm. this was the main customer of this supplier, the paper box supplier, Joseph Rubin and Sons of Brooklyn, they decided that they were going to acquire it because otherwise their business would, if they lost this account, their business would Mm. fail. So they acquired the company. One of the things that I love about the Tootsie Roll story, and this is from the company's website, the original recipe calls for the inclusion of the previous day's batch. So essentially, every Tootsie Roll that you have goes back to that very first recipe that Leo Hirschfeld produced, which I think is so amazing. And fun fact, when we're talking about how many candy corns are made a year, there are 64 million Tootsie Rolls made every single day. Wow. That's a lot. Every day? That is a lot. Every day. One of the things that Tootsie Roll did as well was they went to the other flavors, the cherry and the orange and the vanilla. And I'm like, no, those aren't Tootsie Rolls. And I'm sure that Leo would agree with me. That is not a Tootsie Roll. (laughs) The Tootsie Roll has to be that 
kind of chocolatey. Though it's not, it doesn't, it's not really super chocolatey. That's actually something I've always wondered because it's not chocolate, but it's not, no. it's not carrot. Is it carob? Like where does the flavoring come from? Because it's almost chocolate. So yes, the ingredients are sugar and sugar. Really, <laughs> every candy is about that, right? There is cocoa in it. Yeah. There is whey. But those okay. ingredients are really towards the end of the quantities that go into making mm. a Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Rolls were also considered the energy bar of World War II. And there were a lot of really cool campaign posters about using Tootsie Rolls to help keep the troops' energy up. That was It was really interesting to, to look at the patriotic advertisements for Tootsie Rolls during both world wars, actually, because mm, mm-hmm. it started in 1908. There was the advertisements for when the boys came home that they deserved this mm-hmm. treat. And then in World War II, like I said, they were used to help with the energy for that troops. And because they didn't melt and they were individually wrapped and they had this chocolatey taste. I had heard that they were included in soldier rations because of their... Yeah non-meltability, the fact that they could go around the world and sit for a while if needed, that they didn't spoil, which made them a big, big advantageous part of including them. And it's one of the big reasons that the company, like you said, the other companies during when they were being rationed, a lot of the confectionery right. companies shut down. This one did not because right, they right. had a government contract to supply. So in the middle of this sugar ration, the sugar's going to Tootsie Rolls for the development and manufacture of Tootsie Rolls. Exactly. That would be, I wish it could be a fly on the wall for that conversation about gaining that contract and that ability to have access to, to sugar. That way, at that yeah. time, yeah. for that what purpose. Did that, a very interesting conversation from the company side. How are we going to approach the government to tell them that this is what they need to send, like you said, in the messes to keep the energy of these troops up? We're going to have to do a whole thing on military food, right? Like astronaut ice cream and tang. And oh, all, the, all yep. those things that were developed for yep. kind of basically this purpose. Yeah. You know, how can we how can we maximize nutrition? in a way that doesn't spoil, is fairly universally flavored yep. so that generally folks like it. Although oh, the almost chocolate taste of a Tootsie Roll is what drives me crazy. The fact that it's not actually chocolate, that's almost chocolate, drives me nuts. That's funny. That's the part that I love the most because I know, I know it's not chocolate. I'm not expecting it to be <laughs> chocolate. It's a Tootsie Roll. Yeah, somehow I was always cruelly let down. It quickly became the candy that I would get to last like I and I think I'd go through Smarties before I would go through. <laughs> Incidentally, so I pulled my friends, and I'm not meaning to interrupt you about Tootsie Rolls, but I did do some polls of friends to kind of find out what folks' favorite were, and a lot of people did say Tootsie Rolls, although with a caveat that they liked Tootsie Roll Pops or the fruit-flavored Tootsie Rolls. So the fact that the makers of Tootsie Rolls have been able to diversify clearly has helped the brand out. And yes, Tootsie Rolls, I will confess, Tootsie Rolls beat out candy corn in in my poll. 82 votes for Team Tootsie Roll and 41, so literally half, exactly half. Wow. Voted for Team Candy Corn. But back to Tootsie Roll, and you actually even brought this up, was the Tootsie Pop. It's amazing. It's delicious. And it's wonderful. But the commercials for the Tootsie Pop have to be some of the best commercials that have ever been made. Ever. Ever. 
They were so clever. Even for someone like me who, you know, admittedly not a Tootsie Roll fan, I thought those commercials were adorable. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is the owl. Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? And the answer is three. And then there was the snapping turtle. I forgot about the snapping turtle. Yep. And they also have another. They have the jingle. Everything I see turns into a Tootsie Roll. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one now, too. And that is why I think that the Tootsie Roll should win. Uh, That's fair. You make good points. (laughs) So what were some of your favorite factoids or takeaways from our conversation? I think one of my big takeaways for today is learning a little bit more about how candy is more than just a fun treat, that it's played actually a really important role in our lives in keeping our soldiers alive, helping people go on expeditions. I really had no idea about Tootsie Rolls, not just being a treat, but actually having a purpose. Yeah. What about you, Leigh? What have you learned today? I feel the same way. And I think that you you dig into the candy jar and you grab a piece of candy and you pop it in your mouth and you enjoy it. But the thing that I loved about both of our stories is that there is there's a tradition and there was a person that was behind making this treat. Mm. And I love yeah. the stories. And especially for the Tootsie Roll, the fact that you feel like there's an original piece of that candy in every one of the candies that has subsequently been produced. That was actually a fabulous point. Yeah. That kind of, because it's a little bit like sourdough that way, yeah. where it's a progenitor or the Olympic flame where, you know, kind of endures right. over time. And I think for both of the candies that we talked about, that endurance and the memories that are attached to both of them, I think is really amazing to to hear and to listen to and to contemplate. Yeah. How these humble foods have really sustained us over decades. Yeah. It's really, it, it makes you think of the other foods that we eat that we maybe take for granted. And these are the things we learn as as we eat. eat. My favorite Halloween candy that I remember when I was growing up was uh, Abba Zabba. My favorite Halloween candy is clearly, and I can't imagine a better candy, frankly, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. The candy I remembered loving as a kid is the Tootsie Roll. My favorite Halloween candy is candy corn. My favorite Halloween candy may have to be the Mary Jane. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>